everybody. I'm Kurt Newman from the Bodines, and you are listening to the Rock Solid Podcast. to be this is small town music this is big town music he's ahead of his time you know but he can't use it if only he could prove it well tomorrow's just a song away a song away a song away hey everybody welcome to rock solid the comedy podcast for all things music both new and classic i'm pat francis and joining me in the zoom room today to promote the release of his brand new album, For the Last Time, please welcome singer, songwriter, and founding member of Bodine's, Kurt Newman. Hey, Kurt. How you doing? Nice to be here. I'm glad to talk to you today. So, Kurt, where are you talking to me from? Um, I'm just outside Austin, Texas right now. I've been living down here for about 20 years, so uh, I'm still here. Didn't plan on staying this long, but I'm still here. <laughs> well... I can't think of a better music community there. So, I mean, That's it sounds like, sounds like the place for a musician. Yeah. Yeah. I've been coming here since the eighties really. And uh, so much music here, so many musicians and so many people who would tour with us. So um, <clears throat> I thought I would spend some time down here, but I'm a Midwesterner at heart. So I miss all the beautiful seasons up there. So I keep thinking I'm going to move back there someday, but um, I've yet to, you know, get out of here. Once you get a family planted, it's tough to move it all somewhere else. So I, I know it. I'm in, uh, I'm in Los Angeles. I moved here 27 years ago from uh, Chicago. So, uh, and I'm not leaving because the weather here is fantastic. It is, but I don't know. I just miss the summers and the falls up there. It was something that just uh, drew me in. I was really connected to those seasons somehow, the energy that goes on. And so I, I really miss that down here. Beautiful winters down here too, but I just can't, uh, I, I've never been comfortable with Christmases with no snow and stuff like that. It's just bizarre to me. Well, I, I understand that. You probably do get some seasons though when you're touring. Very much. Yeah. You know, we spend a lot of time doing shows in the Midwest. You know, I was just up there last weekend doing shows and uh, so yeah, I get, I get a, a bunch of it consistently and we, we tend to spend a week up there around Christmas time doing shows as well. So it's good. You know, maybe that's enough, but I, I do miss it. I still feel connected to that area of the country all the time. Okay. Before we talk about for the last time, uh, which by the way, before listening to the album and listening to that song, I didn't know if that meant like, this might be the last Bodine's album. Is there, is there yeah. a secret message in there? Well, I think it has a bit of a double meaning. You never know. Um, you know, I've put a lot of records out, a lot of music, um, I hope to keep going, but the music industry doesn't make it easy on you these days to keep going. And so, um, I always feel like with every record and every tour, every year, kind of that it's like, I take it one year at a time and see how we're doing and how crowds are and how the music's still being accepted and played. And, and, uh, then I keep going if I can, but, I, but it also had a double meaning in the song for the last time, which is really about relationships and and coming to an end of a relationship and that final realization of you're just not going to save it no matter how much you might want to and so um 
double meaning. Well, I guess you had to go with the rich and the beautiful and leave me here alone. I've been on this cold phone. It's lonely in this room. It's hard to believe and still I'd get on Well, it's a great song. It's a great album title. And yeah. you hit it out of the park with this one, 14 albums in, and you're still making great music. So you have to be proud of that. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I really felt like um, I felt like I did a good job on this record, um, which is good and bad. I, I hear a lot of people say, you know, you need to get really be uncomfortable with your music to be good. And that's not the way I felt about this record. I felt like this is something the way I wanted this. This is what I wanted to say. And this is what I wanted it to sound like. And so I was happy with that, even if artistically it's kind of the wrong thing to do. Um, I was really happy with it. I mean, I really like listening to it and I was hoping people really would connect with it too. And so far everyone says they really like it. It's got a warmness to it. I think that kind of draws people in. And I know for Bodine fans, I think they really like the sound of it and stuff, but um, I definitely was not uncomfortable making it. Well, that's good then. That's a, that means it's a positive experience. Sort of, sort of. Yeah, I just see a lot of people like artistically, they think you need to really be in some place where you're not comfortable. And I, that's a good argument, I suppose, for creating art as well. And um, I can understand that. Um, but this process wasn't that is all I'm saying. This process felt like this is what I want to do. This is what I want it to sound like. And I hope everybody liked it. And so far, it's been a pretty good response. That process might be better when you're younger. I Maybe. think after you've been doing it this long, you look at things differently and, and so you have a different mindset. So, yeah, yeah, no, that's a good point. I, th I agree with that. When you get older, it's kind of like how you make music is kind of a craft. You know, you're kind of a craftsman and, you know, anyone who spends a lifetime learning how to build furniture or something like that is going to understand there's a process that works really well because you've learned a lot about it. And so that may be the case for what I was doing. Um, I just felt <laughs> like, you know, maybe it was supposed to be more uncomfortable, but I, I, I agree with what you're saying when you're young, it's probably a better um, philosophy for making art than, than when you're older because you have learned so much. Now, correct me if I'm wrong about this. You wrote, performed, and produced every song in this album. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's not unusual for Bodine's. I was doing, yeah. playing most of the instrumentation throughout all our records. It's just we didn't really advertise that and, and say that much. You know, we kind of put credits for everybody playing stuff. Um, but typically, because I was good at playing a lot of instruments, um, for efficiency, I would just go in and play that stuff and do it the quickest and uh, 
and move things along. And I was really, I have really great timing because I grew up as a drummer. So I, it's easy for me to do that stuff. So this isn't that different for me to play everything and to write, you know, I was always writing at least half the songs. Um, and I typically would arrange most everything we did. So that's not uncommon, but I think um, for a lot of artists who went through the pandemic, you know, who were sitting in a house or a room somewhere. And so you just started fiddling away with stuff. And I, I think a lot of people did do records that way this year. But uh, for me, it was pretty typical to do it that way. Although I will say T-Bone had some good advice from me on the early records where he told me, you know, you, you don't want to do your records all by yourself because they end up sounding too kind of mono, meaning one perspective only. And I think also that there's a good argument for that, too. Some of the great projects out there, some of our greatest records were really banned collaborations where you all get in there together and you all have a lot of good ideas and you make records. So I like doing that too. This record just turned out to be more of the um, mono perspective on all the songs. And even when Tom Petty would make a solo album, the Heartbreakers were still involved in that, even if it didn't say, and the Heartbreakers on those three specific albums I'm thinking of. Now, at this point in your career though, this could easily be a Kurt Newman album but there's value in the name Bodines. So is yeah. that why you continue to fly the Bodines flag? Certainly. Yeah. I mean, I worked my most of my life in Bodines, um, kind of building the brand of Bodines. And, and so when you hear the name Bodines, you come to expect a certain type of music and sound um, that this music all fits within that framework of Bodines. If I were to do just a Kurt Newman record, which I probably will do next, it's going to be, different sounding. I I tend to approach the Kurt Newman stuff more from my drummer perspective. So it's more rhythm oriented um, beats that you wouldn't hear necessarily in a, on a Bodine's record, which is more Americana based, you know, more guitar based writing and stuff. So um, that's kind of my standard. If it's based in the Americana guitar writing, uh, a field, you know, based on that American rock and roll sound, then I tend to, it tends to be a Bodine project. If it's going to be something that's more towards rhythm and drumming and maybe even poppier sounding, then it tends to be more of a Kurt Newman project. So, and you just mentioned drums. Was that your first instrument, Kurt? Is that your first love? It really is. I, I grew up playing drums. I tell people this because it's, I stumbled into the guitar playing and singing and songwriting stuff. I, when I got out of high school, I was very happy as a drummer, but I couldn't really, I didn't have any money to go to college. So I bought a guitar to try to learn to write songs. Cause I figured just being in a cover band was never going to amount to much. And so I wanted to write original songs. So, but a couple of years later, I, I was putting a band together just for a birthday party. I was going to have in the basement of my parents' house. And so I, uh, I was playing guitar for that and, taught my brother how to play drums for 20 songs and we played this party. And ever since then, I never got to go back to the drums. It somehow right. I was always standing there with a the guitar on and I had never sang, but there was only two of us when we started this. So we thought we all had to do as much as possible. And about a couple of years later, I found myself in Hollywood standing in a studio playing guitar singing one of my songs and T-Bone Burnett saying, that's your first single to me. And I'm just like, I I don't even really know how I got there because I had barely been playing guitar, barely ever singing a song, never planned on being in front. I was really happy being in the back of the stage playing drums, but 
sometimes life has other plans for you. So I just kind of went with it. And more and more, I've tried to adapt to being in that role up front and, and singing songs like that. So since drums are so important to you, when you get a guy yeah. like Kenny Aronoff to play with you on record and live, you can't get any better than that. You got to be satisfied yeah. then with Kenny. Yeah, no, I'm really hard on drummers. You know, if, if a drummer speeds up or slows down on a set, you'll see me turn around and look at him <laughs> like, what are you doing? Because I'm very sensitive to it. And so um, I tend to work with people who have really good beats like Kenny and are really strong in what they're doing. And um, I, I really admire great drummers. I really love it because that was my first love. Now, when you talk about your first album, which was Love and Hope and Sex and Dreams, when you say T-Bone, of course, that's T-Bone Burnett. What was the song you were referring to that you were playing that he said that's your first single? Was it Fade Away? Yeah, it was. We had, for some reason, our manager and Sam had both kind of like knocked a bunch of my songs out for that record because... They thought they were fine, fun, up-tempo songs for live, but they didn't lend themselves to a record. So I was like, well, what do I know? And so we had put a lot of my songs aside. But when we were in pre-production, T-Bone was like, do you guys got any more songs? Play some other stuff for me. And I broke into Fade Away. And by the time we finished it, he pointed at me and said, that's your first single. you know." And so it made me feel good that you know what I was doing as a songwriter wasn't just going to be knocked off the record that I was actually going to you know, be represented. And then that became like the first sound anyone ever heard from Bodine. So it became the standard bearer kind of for our sound in a way. It's also great when someone says, do you have anything else? And you actually do have. Yeah, other we had lots of songs. Yeah. yeah, we were very high energy, fun, up tempo songs. That was my thing to really write a lot of stuff like that. And because um, I just love whipping the crowds up to frenzies while we were playing. And um, so that was my thing. I understood that some records people just wanted soft singer writer stuff, but that just really wasn't me. And so um, some of the up tempo stuff would get on there and then. The second record, Only Love and Dreams, were the singles. And then the third record, You Don't Get Much and Good Work. Somehow it just all became part of our sound of what I was kind of doing. And um, it's, you know, so when I say I'm still kind of doing the stuff I started, that's what I mean. I want to get to the new record, but I just want to talk a little bit more about uh, T-Bone Burnett. And you guys are signed to Slash Warner Brothers Records. That's a big deal for a new band. That's a major label. In yeah. 19, especially in 1986, they got Paul Simon and all kinds of stuff going. Yeah. How long yeah, we were you guys? Were... How long were you guys together as a band before you got <laughs> signed? And where where did they find you? 
Yeah, not long. We were, it was about three years that we had been kind of playing around Milwaukee, but you know, like about a year and a half of that was just Sam and I as a two piece Mm -hmm. acoustic electric guitar trying to play opening up for anyone. And then eventually we got, we met Guy Hoffman played drums with us and we were a three piece. And when we did, when Guy came in and started playing drums for us, you know, on the local scene, we just exploded. Um, I don't know why, but adding that drummer just made everything click for us. And uh, we got put on this showcase that um, Capitol Records was coming into town to see a different band. They were like a Duran Duran kind of sound alike band. And we were on the first of three bands playing on a showcase for Capitol Records. And Capitol walked away from that saying, we like the, we like the first band, you know. <laughs> We never expected in our wildest right. dreams. You know, we were very raw and very unpolished, and we we're playing this new kind of punky Americana music. And you know, like I say, Duran Duran was the sound. You know, and hair bands were the sound. So we weren't doing anything that fit in at all. But we had been trying to get Slash's attention for a lot of years, and when Slash heard the Capitol wanted us they called Warner brothers and said, we got to sign this band. And so we got into a bidding war with a couple of big labels there and went out there and talked to them and really just felt better with the Warner brothers people. Yeah. And with slash, we just liked the artists that slash had signed. And so um, it was kind of a no brainer to sign with them. And then, yeah, you know, I, I thought we were very, very fortunate to get on a major label it makes all the difference in the world. If you're going to get heard, you're going to get on MTV and all those things. And because we were such a different sounding band at the time, it took a lot of money for Warner brothers to kind of get us anywhere. And look, when people did hear us, they were just like, what is this? What is this? And so like us and Los Lobos and other bands like that um, and the blasters, you know, we just started developing an audience in the background and then, you know, the violent films and all these kind of bands came on the scene, REM, and college radio just kind of exploded then with bands like us. And we were really lucky. And how old of a guy are you in 1985, 86? Um, I think I was in the 23 to 24 range. <laughs> so, yeah, this is a whole new thing for you at that age. I mean, yeah. uh, now at my age, 24 is so young. Yeah. Yeah. But- we were very green, too. I mean, I'd never even been on a plane before in my life until the record company flew us out to L.A., that's amazing. So, yeah, yeah. I'd never been to LA, you know, the whole thing of being there and being put up by record company and stuff. It's one of those things that you hear about in like movies you think never really happens, but it did. It was, we were really lucky. And then how did you get uh, together with T-Bone Burnett? Does Warner Brothers put you together with him? Well, they asked who we, you know, would like to work with. And we were big fans of T-Bones from his solo records and his production that he had done with other bands. Um, we just thought he kept it real. He kept it feeling really good. It wasn't about fancy radio production. It was about capturing, you know, the heart and soul of the music. And so we asked for him as our first choice. They reached out. He flew up to Minneapolis to see us when we were playing. And, uh, after the show, he's like, come up to my hotel and we'll talk. We went there and talked and he's, he First thing he says, he looks at us, he goes, y'all need to go home and learn how to play your instruments. <laughs> I thought, I thought, you know, oh, he hates us. This is never going to fly. We heard, uh, you know, later on that he, when he flew back to LA to Warner Brothers, they're like, what do you think? 
And he had said, these guys are going to be the next Beatles. You'd be fools not to, you know, let me do this project with them. And, and so he really liked us, but he just didn't really let on to that. And, uh, and so we went in and just made a real down to earth raw record with them. And it was great. And I wish we would have made the second record with them, but the record company thought we got to get these guys on the radio somehow. So they kind of were pushing us to do more of a rock radio sound. And so that's when I wrote only love and dreams to try and get us on the radio. That he told you guys to uh to learn how to play your instruments because he was trying to get you guys to keep trying he wasn't trying to it was just it was a sneaky way to get you well, guys he was to, right i mean yeah. i had only been playing guitar for a couple of years i barely knew what i was doing sam had been barely playing guitar for maybe even a year he i had never been a singer you know he was we were as raw as you could get you know and so i think he liked that about us, but at the same time, he was where he was used to working with some of the best of the best people out there yeah. in LA. So um, in order to make a record, he knew you had to play a certain level. And so I think he was trying to keep us focused and keep us hungry, you know? And then uh, in 87, you guys are declared best new American band in the Rolling Stone readers poll, which uh, helps get you the opening slot on U2's Joshua tree tour. Yeah. Those must have been some of the biggest crowds you had ever played in your life at that point. Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty surreal. You know, it all happens really fast when you're young like that. But um, we liked playing our own shows because we could play for two hours, you know, yeah. instead of in an opening act. But Warner Brothers and Premier Talent, our touring agents, asked me, like, you know, if you could open for anyone, anybody, who would it be? And I was like, well, I like you too. They were really popular at the time. I loved their energy and stuff like that. I knew there was going to be a big tour. And then a week later, we get a call just like, oh, well, you're going to do some dates with you too. I was like, wow. Um, so yeah, it was great. And their audience really liked us. The band themselves couldn't have been nicer. They were really great people, uh, great to work with and came up and sang and played good work with us and stuff. It was, it was a lot of fun. It was a great, great time. Yeah, I saw them uh, in 84 and Lone Justice was the opening act. So it makes sense that Bodine's would uh, fit in in 1987. So cool. Yeah, I think for a while they, they were really, really interested in Americana and that yeah. sound, you know, especially on the Joshua Tree and the the records that kind of followed. Um, 
that the rattle and hum and stuff that so they were really paying attention to what bands like us were doing and and where we were coming from and where that american music was coming from um so so it was it was a great time yeah they at that point joshua trees their fifth album and yet they're still looking for brand new bands for their influence which uh which is pretty cool you know i think as an artist you're always doing that you know you're trying to see I mean, you're affected by what's going on around you, whether it's everyday life <clears throat> or it's other music. Um, and you can hear that in so many records. The The Rolling Stones were really good at that. Like whatever was really popular throughout the 80s, all of a sudden they would sound like that a, a bit, you know. And um, so I think it's common for that to happen, for you to use the influences of what's going on, because, you know, it's new stuff tends to have kind of a real electric energy about it, you know, so you can't help but be somewhat attracted to what's going on. I always felt definition of rock and roll was that it wasn't a sound. It was an energy that you were either connected to or not. And, you know, like in the two thousands rap was kind of the rock and roll because it had all that new kind of energy and stuff. And, you know, rock bands like me weren't going to do rap, but then also you saw Aerosmith working with DMs, run DMC yeah. and stuff, you know, and things like that would happen because that's where the energy is. That's where things are happening. So you see people tie into that a bit. And I think you two was the same way. They were affected by something that was going on. Let me ask you about a song on the new record. The song's A Little More Time. In the liner notes, that's dedicated to Tom Petty. What did Tom mean to you as an artist? And were you lucky enough to ever meet him? No, we worked with Mike Campbell on some music. I never met Tom, um, but that's all right with me. I didn't need to. I, I don't really like meeting people like that because I like I like the image in my head and I don't want it to be <laughs> right destroyed by our humanness, which I know we all are. But anyways, Tom to me was just at the pinnacle of songwriting, what he wrote you know, how he sang, how the Heartbreakers played it. Just when I was growing up playing music and listening to music um, in high school, their sound just had just grabbed me and took hold of me. And I just loved it so much. And, and throughout the years, you know, he never trailed off as a songwriter. It just everything he would put out was just so good. And it didn't it wasn't complicated. It was what I like was just simplicity, simple melodies, you know, simple singing and simple message. And and for me, he was just at the pinnacle of that. And when I just first started singing a little more time, it just felt like kind of a Tom Petty from the 70s kind of era when they were kind of pushing that rock sound and uh, and that kind of simple message. But there's that 
there's a birdiness about the chorus, you know, and, and so I felt I wanted to dedicate something to, to, uh, to the world out there. They knew how much Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers affected me. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Now, Kurt, let me ask you this. You're not only a craftsman with your songwriting, you actually make instruments. Yeah, I put my guitars together. I'm not a lukather where I'm like cutting, you know, the wood, but I, I work with different people around the country who make custom work for me, custom bodies, custom necks, you know, to, to what my designs are, what I'm asking for. And, and then I gather it all up with what I want to do with whatever wood I want for the body and stuff like that. And I put them all together and I wire them myself to the sound I kind of want. I spent a lot of time tearing guitars apart and trying to rebuild them. And it occurred to me like, why don't I just start from scratch and put them together the way I like? Cause I being a drummer and all, I just don't approach guitar like a lot of quote unquote pure guitarists do. And I always want to kind of develop my own thing on guitar, my own sound. So um, that's what I do now. I put my own guitars together and um, create my own sounds with them. And uh, it's, it's been great because I always like hands-on kind of work, stuff like that. I've built furniture and stuff too, because I just like doing stuff, creating unique pieces that are your own thing that you just don't find anywhere and everywhere in the world. They're yours. And these, these guitars were used exclusively in the making of the new album. Yeah. Yeah. Everything on there is bastard guitars. I call them <laughs> bastard because I used to rip guitars apart, which we would say I'm bastardizing them. And so bastard guitars is a fitting name for these guitars. Again, I'm an album guy and this album is perfectly sequenced. And I love that you kept it at 10 songs because a lot of times with CDs, yeah. you can get 12, 14, 15. But for me, that's always too many. I don't know why, but it's, they're never quality songs the whole way through. And yeah. this album and these 10 songs, you're not going to skip any. Yeah, that's my feeling too. My favorite records are the jazz records that have five songs on them, you know, because you play them and play them and you're familiar with every note on that record. And uh, that's what I like. You know, I, I'm 100% with you on that. I, I don't want 16 songs on a record. I really, I want five to eight, really. And I would just put eight, but I just don't want anyone to feel like, oh, you didn't put enough songs on. So I put on 10. But I think to really know this stuff intimately is to have less is more, you know, yeah. and, and give the audience a chance to really digest it all. Uh, and and I think you're more apt to do that with less songs on a record than you are with, a, you know, vinyl would limit you. You could only have like eight to 10 songs on vinyl. Yeah. That's what I grew up with. And that's what I loved, you know, because you intimately knew every song on those records. I love the way you put that for it's for the listeners to get involved with the record because yeah, when there's these 15 song albums, I never fully get to know every single song. And with your album, just after a few weeks, love it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's the way to do it. I really do. In this age of streaming, even, you know, my generation, we still like records. And I want people to live with the record. And, and secondly, I, I've 
done so many records when I tour, I can't possibly play these, all these songs either. So it's hard. I don't see why we put out so many songs when you're never going to be able to play them all, no matter who you are, even if you're doing three and four hour shows, you're not going to be able to play them all. And so I try to limit it for that reason as well. Now the record has some liner notes for a few of the songs that you wrote. Uh, The first track in the album is called loved. Do you think you could give us a thumbnail of the story about this song loved or what your inspiration was for it? Yeah. Um, when I was a kid, my mom used to say to me in the supermarket, if you don't stay with me, I'm going to leave you here. And then one day I turned around and she was gone and I was there alone and I couldn't find her. And I, I started walk to walk home. And just as I was stepping out in the street, some old lady grabbed me by the arm. And to this day, when I look back, I felt like there was a guardian angel because it was a busy street. I was about three or four years old. If you can imagine a three or four year old trying to walk home at the city of five, six blocks to their house. And uh, it wasn't until I had kids of my own that I thought, Jesus, I I would never let that happen to my kid. I would never, ever do that. And so when I wrote the song loved, my kids were very little. They were two, three years old. And um, I just wanted them to know that, that, that you, you know, as a kid, you'll know 100% you're going to, that you were loved by my actions every day, you know, what I've done in your life. And whereas I wasn't sure of that as a kid growing up, we had different times, different perspectives. You know, I heard a comedian one day say that our parental advice, when we were kids, that we would be going two miles away to swim in some lake and our parents would say, don't drown, you know, and that was kind of how, yeah. how we were raised, you know. Um, so it was different times and different stuff, but I think today, you know, we're, we're really more focused on making sure our kids know that they were loved and not, I didn't want to be the kind of parent that was going to direct their lives either. So, which I think was all part of it. Anyways, the, the song love sat around for a lot of years. Um, and I finally felt like I just had to get it up. My kids are older now, but I just wanted to finally get it on a record for people to hear and and reach people with that message because I think it was an important message. Not gonna leave you standing all alone Wondering which way to go to get back home Three years old on the street And you're too scared to even think about moving not gonna leave you stumbling in the dark left to the world of the takers i'm gonna help you to understand and know and i'm gonna help you I'm 58 years old and yeah, parenting skills when I was a kid, they're a little suspect at times, but uh, I have two kids, 21 and 17. And, you know, you just have to be supportive people. You just have to uh, embrace them, love them and support them. 
James Kahn just passed and I saw oh. a story. James Kahn's dad never told him that he loved him. And so James uh-huh. Kahn said that when he had kids, he told him he loved them every day. And yeah. that's the way to do it, guys. Yeah. Yeah. So that was why it was important to get it on this record for me. But I also wanted to put that message out there for the world that it is important to let your kid no, I mean, this record, the whole record is really more based about positive messages. Yeah. And it's also very much based in the experience of family and the journey you take as a family together through this life, you know, and how difficult it can be. You know, like Pressure Queen is about watching the stress of my wife and stuff and what she went through in her life every day and stuff. And I can feel the heat coming off you tonight Got a fire for the righteous fight You've been writing wrong since you were just a kid Can't believe it's still going on I watch you wage these wars in the distance Try to pick you up and you're falling down Stones and broken bones. Do you ever settle down? Pressure queen, you're always fighting for what's right in a world gone wrong. Pressure queen, you're always fighting, waiting for the day to come along. So you can. I've always felt connected to that, the idea of family and struggle and getting through every day and work and paying your mortgage kind of stuff, because I think it's it's something we all identify with. So I I really kind of like writing about that as as far as my songwriting goes. And the positivity does come through, but you're not hitting us over the head with it. It's just kind of, it's just in there. And uh, in some songs you have to listen and discover it. Yeah. That's, those are the best albums for me. Yeah. Um, you got a song here called I'm a mess. Yeah. I guess that's uh, how you feel sometimes when you're on tour and you're away from your loved ones. Don't know where I am. It's too bright to make sense. Empty cars, white lines. Feels like a parking lot. Has it gotten better? Are you still a mess on the road? Um, It's better now. You know, we used to be on tours for six, eight weeks at a time on a bus. Now we've been able to adapt to where we go out for, you know, five or six days and come home very often. My wife or kids will travel with me. So it's much better now than it had been when I was younger. 
Um, but that is the struggle of being away from your family. It's, it's not just even musicians, like people who travel for business and stuff like that, or being in an office every day while your kids are gone. It's, it's all of that dynamic right. of trying to figure it out. Ever since I was a kid, I, I, I've looked at these situations thinking, why do we do things this way? You know, why are we used to be a tribe where we would all kind of function together and somehow we broke that all up to where now kids are raised by strangers in a school and parents are off doing their work. And I don't think it's the best way to do things. And so um, I'm always kind of pushing that message out there about getting back to what seems to make more sense, which is that connection, you know, being in tune with your kids and what's going on in everyday life and what they're going through. And COVID actually might've changed this a little bit because now People yeah. were working from home. Kids were schooling from home. Everyone was together as a family unit. So certainly we don't want people dying from a pandemic, but no. there, there are good things that come from bad situations. So, yeah, it was funny because the pandemic was more like normal. I, all my kids were, were homeschooled, you know, because I didn't agree with the school system and how they taught kind of how they broke kids down, um, to be, you know, kind of subservient to the system. And I just don't agree with that. And, and so when the pandemic happened, I felt like everyone's finally kind of experiencing my life, of, you know, <laughs> when working with your kids and trying to live every day like that, you know, and adjusting. When, uh, when you, uh, and this isn't about music, but I have a question for you about homeschooling. When you homeschool your kid, how do you, how do they get a sense of uh, being in a group situation or making friends and things like that. How do you, how do you tackle that aspect when you're homeschooling? Well, if we're all not allowed to go anywhere, you can't deal with that very well. Right. But like my kids have always, since they were young, have traveled with me to shows. So they they deal with very large groups of people, and and they're mostly in adult situations with other adults around them. I think if they lacked anything, it was being around younger kids all the time. But um, uh, I think, you know, I think we're at an odd time for all kids, even kids who are in schools are feeling very isolated and spend more time looking at their phone and being engaged with social media than they are with people around them. So um, I think we're in some strange times right now with all of it uh, yeah. and how to connect. I think that's what we're lacking is why, why we're pulling so far apart as a country and a world is because we've forgotten how to connect with each other and understand each other you know yeah. there's no understanding anymore everybody's pointing fingers at each other and blaming them for problems or saying you know you're you're wrong because you don't believe what i believe well none of us know that we believe in anything that is the same it's all speculation well so there's got to be more of that understanding and more of trying to make that connection but i didn't think the school's did the right thing by telling kids to shut their mouths and, and learn only what they told them to learn. And I just think what I told my kids is, you know, you pick up so much in life, just getting through a day. If I take you to the grocery store, you're literally learning about commerce. You're learning about interaction. You're learning about products. You're learning about product placement. Yeah. All this stuff is coming in at you and you don't even know you're learning. To me, that's the way to learn. Yeah, is is not sitting down, shutting up, staring at a book for eight hours a day. It's about being in the world, you know, and learning how to function in this world and how to get through the world and how to make it a better place.
Uh, first single on the new album is You Gotta Go Crazy. Tell me a little bit about that song. Well, like I said at the beginning of this, I always like running up, writing up tempo kind of music that really will grab people. To me, there's something about when I talked about growing up in the seasons, when you'd go from winter to springtime up there, man, everybody just wanted to go outside and you want to get in your car and roll down the windows and turn the radio up. So you got to go crazy is all about that feeling for me is you want to get in the car, you want to turn the song up. Sometimes in all the craziness that's going on in life, you know, um, and you're stressed to the max, I find the best thing to do is like gather everyone up and go have a big dinner at a restaurant or something to do something while that's not totally crazy. You know, it may go against your idea of, oh, we have to save money or we can't do this or we can't really live. We need to suffer somehow. <laughs> My idea is like take a vacation, do something crazy, um, do something positive energy wise, you know, and turn things around that way. And sometimes it makes sense to do that. And so that's the philosophy behind the song. But as far as musically, it's just supposed to pick you up and make you feel good. Something we could play live and make everybody want to get up and dance and have a good time. Cool. Let's go back to the eighties for a little bit. We, uh, we discussed briefly outside looking in. I just wanted to mention that was produced by Jerry Harrison of talking heads. And yeah. uh, that was the, like you said, the uh, label wanted to maybe get more commercial sound, get you on the radio, that type of thing. Basically, yeah, we had worked with Mike Campbell first, which everybody thought was the perfect fit. Even yeah. I did. But but after we did some demos with him, the record company wasn't really happy with it. So we we had to continue to look around. Um, Jerry is from Milwaukee, so he's from our hometown and he really wanted to do it. He had a lot of energy about the project 
And so we thought, well, let's just go try some stuff. And we did that then. And I think he and his engineer um, were able to really kind of get some of that big rock sound with only love and dreams that the record company was looking for because they had a, the record company had heard the demos of those songs and they thought these are good singles. So let's go after these. And so it was just a matter of getting the sound right and getting kind of the bigger rock sound together because, you know, it wasn't like Warner brothers was doing a bad thing by saying you have to get on the radio. They're trying to help us yeah, survive. Of course. Basically. Yeah. It's like, this is how you're going to survive. We're going to get you on the radio. We're going to get you breaking to more people. So I had to find a way. What do we do in Bodine's? Well, we do guitar driven music and we do harmonies. So that's what I'm going to write. So that's what we did. Jerry had a lot of good energy for it. We had a great studio in Wisconsin and we just kind of went there and tried some stuff and it ended up being the record. Yeah. And again, it's a, it's the music business. They want, they want you to thrive so that they can make money and so that everyone is doing well. So, yeah, that's what I say to people all the time too. It's like, if you just love music, you know, play it in your bedroom, play it in your basement, enjoy it, play it at your local bar. But if you want to be in the music business, absolutely. It's a whole different equation. You're signing a contract with a bank basically saying, they're going to fund your project, but you have responsibilities too. And it's give and take, and you've got to learn to work within that. I, I really like the major label being on Warner brothers. A lot of people were complaining about not a mo- enough money and stuff, but I, I felt like, you know, they were doing a lot of good for us as well. I think they probably do take a lot more money than they should from artists, but um, they also provided a big service that helped break a lot of music that wouldn't have been heard otherwise. And then when you look at the roster and who your label mates are, you know, that's, that's exciting, you know, yeah. to see who else is on these labels. Let's go to uh, 19, 1989. The album is home. I have uh, quite a few things to talk about with this album. Kenny Aronoff on drums. Yeah. Uh, first single is you don't get much. And that did pretty well on rock radio. Yeah. produced by Jim Scott and you guys met him when he was working on Robbie Robertson's self-titled album. Yeah. And you sang background vocals on two songs, Showdown at Big Sky.
and American Roulette. like being in the studio with Robbie Robertson and and were you a fan of Robbie Robertson's yeah I was I mean I wasn't a huge band fan but I certainly grew up with their music and and loved it and um I will what I say about Robbie is just it was everything you imagined it would be he he couldn't have been a more gracious nicer guy who had a million amazing stories to tell um it was it was a rock and roll dream to to spend a couple of weeks with him, not only just singing on the record, but we did Saturday Night Live with them, too. And we did David Letterman with him and stuff, too. And um, whenever you're around him, there's other, you know, Mick Jagger's around, too. And Keith Richards was around, too. And then we got to perform with his band, which was just the best players, Tony Levin and Manu Cachet and all these great great players and Daniel Lenoir and and so just being there and hanging out with them and being part of it was a dream like you yeah. can only imagine I mean everything you would think about like I'd love to do this because it would just be incredible it was that you know some people talk about people being assholes or disappointing situations but it was none of that it was just all positive all really good stuff and uh, I couldn't have been happier doing it it was a real privilege those are the uh, pinch yourself moments. Yeah, I was in an elevator with Robbie and me and Keith Richards and um, and Bob Clearmountain, the producer, yeah. and, and someone else I can't remember. But I was just it was a very, very small elevator. <laughs> and and Robbie's here and Keith is here. And by, then Robbie was like, oh, by the way, Keith, this is Kurt. You know, and I was like. I remember the skull ring coming towards me to shake his hand. And I, I had grown up really loving Keith and the music he did with the stones a lot. You know, I was a big fan of the simplicity of his guitar playing, you know, and yet it was just so perfect all the time and, and very fitting. And so um, wonderful moment. Yeah, cool. definitely. Well, I'm glad we're talking about the Keith Richards and the Rolling Stones, because that'll help me lead into this next question. In 2022, there's some lyrics that were written in the past that don't hold up now. Even the Stones dropped brown sugar from their set list after all these years. When I was a kid, you know, Kiss had Christine 16. And when I'm a teenager, that doesn't really bother me. But as a, an adult, you know, I start to think, oh, those guys that wrote that were in their late 20s. Yeah. So there's a song on home called Good Work, yeah. which has maybe a little cringeworthy lyric in 2022 because we're talking about sweet little mary was just 13 right and the only reason and the only reason i bring it up kurt is because that song is in your current set list yeah so 
how do you qualify singing that as a parent and and a man of your age? I don't sing it. I uh, on the 2020 vision version of that song that I released, I had changed the lyric. Thanks. Okay, great. Okay. Mary is a dance machine walking down the street. So I love it. Okay, great. Um, what just so people know, when I wrote the lyric, I was talking about Jerry Lee Lewis. I wasn't talking about me. Jerry okay. Lee Lewis had married his third old cousin back when. So this was a rock and roll song. I was paying like homage, which is again, not, not good considering the situation, sure. but I, that's what I was talking about in the song. Sweet Little Mary was 13 walking down the street. It was talking about Jerry Lee Lewis and his, his bride of, I think she was 13. I think that's so too. What I grew up. Hearing. <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, now I changed that lyric to she was a dance machine because it isn't it was inappropriate always. Yeah. And but, I was not that guy ever in my life. Right. I never, ever do something like that. Well, and I applaud you for I applaud you for that. And I'm glad that uh, I'm glad that you uh, set me straight because listening to yeah. all the back catalog, I was like, oh, no. So yeah. go listen to the 2020 vision version of it, which is. There's a video on YouTube. You can just pull it up and watch it and you'll see that. I, I certainly will. The lyric. I, don't, I don't even have to check it out. I take you at your word. Uh, yeah. You enter the 1990s with an album called Black and White produced by David Z of Prince fame. This sounds like an incredible chance for an amazing collaboration. Was this recorded yeah. at Paisley Park? Yeah. Yes, it was. Um Again, you know, surreal experience. Prince was hanging around the whole time and R.E.M. was in the studio next to us. So we we're hanging out with those guys. Well, I think they were making automatic for the people at the time with Steve Litt. Um, so a great time. Um, David Z, great producer, but very different sounds for us. There was the one record in our repertoire where I just didn't do a lot. I just sat back and let him do the record. Um you know, I played the guitars on the record, but um, I, I was it was his project. And the record company thought, again, that it was the next step into pop radio, maybe, or something like that. And um, so we let it happen yeah. and we let it go on. And I really liked him, but I didn't always understand all the sounds. But, it, you know, I had fun making the record nonetheless and um, letting it be whatever it was going to be. And the funny part is... So many of those songs on that record, you know, Good Things and Paradise and True Devotion went on to be people's absolute favorite songs. So it. Yep. Good Things is fantastic. Yeah. To this day, it's still a great sounding uh, song. I love it so much. Yeah. See, I can say words only simple. See, I can say words only clear. Oh, I can your heart is beating me, yeah, yeah, Haunting yeah. love is all that I feel when you're passing by. Haunting love is all that I see here. It's there in your eyes. I see. No, 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 don't pass me over. No, 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 don't pass me by. See, I can see good things for you and I. Yeah, good things for you.
we're almost done, but we can't go without talking, of course, about Closer to Free. Right. So uh, finally, after five albums, you get the chart success that I assume you're always striving to get. Uh, it also opens you up to a new audience because this is a theme song from a TV show. So people are hearing it every single week. Of course, it's Party of Five. And that's a teen slash family show. So it also might open the band up to a whole different audience. Is yeah. having a song like this a blessing or a curse? I think it's a bit of both. I really do. And in retrospect, um, you know, we had made the very pop sounding record Black Away before that. And the record company thought they had literally done some damage to us by making the record sound that way. So when we went in to make Go Slow Down, it was 180 degrees. They were like, go make a critically acclaimed record again. And Kenny started playing drums on that, but uh, the record label thought it all sounded too good. And so I went in and played the drums on that record because I knew what they wanted. And so that was a record where I did just about everything on that record playing wise and except for Closer to Free. That's the one track they let go by with Kenny on the drums yes. and stuff. So it was it was cool that uh, that was kind of the original sound of the record when we started recording it. But, you know, like the song Idaho went to number one on the AAA charts on that record for a lot of weeks when the record first came out. And there's a song called Stay On that also did really well. That's kind of better for an artist when your songs kind of go to and chart on the radio because of the record. Yeah. So three years later, when Closer to Free got pulled off into the theme song thing, 
it was a great thing in that it introduced us to people probably around the world that never heard of Bodhi's. But it's a bad thing in that the people who were just discovering us, that's all they knew. That's all they wanted right. to hear. They weren't going to be ready for two hours of other stuff that wasn't that. Right. So it could, you know, we literally that year had to do radio shows where you would go on and play for 10 or 20 minutes. You know, you'd play three songs and be off and there'd be 30 artists on the show. And, and for us, we're just looking at each other saying, this is, this is not what we do, you know? So it was right. very frustrating that way. Um, but I would never complain about having a big hit song. It gets you a lot of credibility in the industry that you, you did it and you arrived there and it was a great become a hit. It was a great representation of Bodine's and the kind of energy we play and the guitar playing that we do and stuff. So that worked out good. A lot yes. of, a lot of bands have a big hit that's not their sound at all. And I just felt like that must be just miserable. And so we were lucky a, a year or two later after the single, we were able to get back to our regular kind of audience and fans. And, and yet we still had had the hit and the experience. So I'd say it's a bit of both. It's a, you know, people who know the band only from that probably don't have a lot of respect for us, but people who have been with us since the beginning or discovered all our other music because of that, then it's a blessing. And of course, when you play live, that's a crowd pleaser. You can't ever not play that song live. Yeah, it's, it is, but I think there's people who come to our shows come for a lot of other songs right. probably even before Closer, which is, you know, they have a favorite song somewhere that they really like. Like Good Things is just everybody's favorite in the Midwest because it just got played more than anything in the Midwest and for more years. But Closer to Free is kind of like your, you know, we end with it. It's the song everybody wants, you know, right. needs to hear or expects to hear. And so... It's always there. It's like the comedian who has his big closing bit. That's the that's the big one. 1996, Blend, a song Hurt by You, which was a single. I think that should have got way more airplay. That's a fantastic song. It did debut in the top 40. It's yeah. just that we were going through a lot of stuff. Our manager had quit and I, you know, we were trying to record this record and get it out at a time when the wheels were kind of falling off the band and um, our A&R person had left Warner Brothers. So we had a new A&R person who didn't really understand us. And he was really excited about one of his new bands, which was called Green Day. I think I've <laughs> heard so, of them. Even though it debuted, yeah, even though um, Hurt by Love debuted in the top 40 and probably could have gotten a lot more play, they just didn't, 
we didn't have any infrastructure in the band to really go and and get things working. And so they just kind of let it die quickly. And it's unfortunate because I think a lot of people did like the song, but that was kind of the beginning of the end for, for Bodine's for about um, seven or eight years there of where we just were stuck in a rut. Yeah. Took a lot to get out of that. But many, many more albums were produced after Blend, including our 14th album, which I have yeah. copies. I'm giving away copies of That's the cool. album. Uh, I got four copies to give away to people. Let me tell people where they can find you. The album is out right now. You can get yeah. it everywhere. If you want information yeah. about Kurt and Bodines, go to bodines.com. On Twitter and Instagram, you're at Bodines, which it couldn't be easier. Yeah. So you're going to be uh, you're going to be doing doing shows to promote. You can find out where those shows are online. And Kurt, thank you so much for sitting down with me today and, and chatting music. I loved it. Oh, thank you for spending time with me. I appreciate you getting the word out about the record because, you know, these days that's what it takes. It takes people sitting down and talking about it, getting excited. But I think people really like the record. I, I think it's a warm, wonderful record to listen to. So go give it a listen. Oh, and one more thing I forgot to mention. I've been podcasting for 12 years. You are now a podcaster. How dare you come into my realm? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not making records, Kurt. So why are you doing a podcast? Um, my daughter has a podcast company kind of thing, and she thought I should be doing it. So she's kind of been saying, you know, here, I want you to come and do this. And so I was trying to like, do it for her, but it gave me an opportunity to talk to a bunch of really creative people. Cool. My whole thing is just pushing the creative element out there in the world of good stories of people who followed intuition into somewhere and it led to some interesting story somehow. And that's, that's all I'm doing. So I, I'm not trying to encroach. That's for <laughs> no, sure. I'm I know. just trying to talk to people and, and, um, and I don't, you know, it's not that I don't take it seriously. I do, but I, it's kind of just a fun thing for now sure. for me to be able to talk to people. And it's called staring at the world. And you recently yeah. interviewed comedian Margaret Cho. Yeah. Lots so, of interesting yeah. people. Yeah. I got to talk to uh, Stevie Van Zandt. It hasn't been released yet, but I got to interview him. Who's a lifelong kind of hero. Yeah. Um, He's been on my show. He's amazing. Yeah. And, um, and some other people that were, you know, cool to talk to and, yeah. and people I didn't even know that uh, when I, you know, finally read about them and stuff, they, they had really incredibly interesting stories. And so I was, that's, that's the best for me. It's not just talking to Stevie Van Zandt. It's finding people out there that I don't know that have really interesting stories. Cool. Okay. Once again, the album is called for the last time, go get it. People 10 songs, all killer, no filler, as they used to say. <laughs> Nice. Uh, the podcast is staring at the world. And if you're finding my podcast, you'll be able to find Kurt's. And my last question, Kurt, our playout song for today, what song from for the last time or any song from your entire career, would you like me to end the show with? <sighs> um, why don't you end it with uh, come a long way. Come a long way. You got it. Uh, Kurt Newman and Bodine's. Thank you so much. We are at Rock Solid Show. Go to rocksolidpodcast.com for all things about the show. And please enjoy Come a Long Way. Thanks, Kurt. Thank you so much. 
still can't believe we've come this far. It's been a long road from where we are, and the moments like children they go on their way. Better hold on to something today, and we come a long way in this living, chasing our dreams and forgiving. We're spending our time, yeah, living in heaven. Yeah, we come a long way here, and there's a long way to go. Through love. 